Let's open the Word of God once more to Matthew chapter 5. And read together the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We focus our attention on verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that at the same time lifts us to the heights and brings us very low. It's a sermon that simultaneously fills our hearts with exhilaration as we behold the wonder of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace, and also a sermon that at the same time searches us out and at times makes us uncomfortable because of how searching it is. It's a sermon that comforts us because it shows us who we are by grace. Citizens of the kingdom, redeemed by the blood of the king. And this opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, as we well know now, places before us the characteristics, the essential features of Christian character that are wrought in us by the sovereign grace of God. This is who we are and it is a blessed thing to be what Jesus describes in this sermon. But as Jesus describes what we are by grace, the light of it exposes in all the more vivid detail the face of what our old man is against whom we fight our whole life long. We are exhilarated by the grace of God and also confronted with the reality of our sins. Thus appropriate tonight for this preparatory sermon that as we consider another beatitude we might be exhilarated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also be humbled, confronted with our sins, not that we might despair, but that seeing them and confessing them humbly, we might turn to Christ and with exhilaration rejoice in His mercy, in His forgiveness 
for poor sinners who mourn. Sermon on the Mount overturns the wisdom of the world. It's another striking thing about this sermon that in here, in this sermon, Jesus brings forth a new gospel-informed mindset, a new gospel-shaped logic that is completely contrary to man's natural thinking and is incomprehensible to the man who does not have faith. And nowhere is this clearer, nowhere is the paradoxical nature of so many of Jesus' statements in this sermon clearer than here in the second beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. By human reasoning, nothing is more not blessed than mourning. And yet Jesus puts these seemingly contrary things together in a marvelous way to illustrate the glory of his kingdom and to shed light on what grace does with his people, making them new, making them different, transforming them to citizens of the kingdom above. Lastly, by way of introduction, let us note that there is a strong connection between the first and second Beatitudes. We noticed last week that the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is the foundational Beatitude upon which the rest are based. It's the groundwork. Only the person who is poor in spirit, that is humble, can manifest the other Beatitudes which the Lord sets forth in the subsequent verses. We noted that really the chief character trait of the Christian is humility. Humility. But now, those who are poor in spirit mourn. Those who are poor in spirit, they alone mourn in the sense of this text. And their mourning is inseparable from their spiritual poverty. It is a mourning that arises from their deep humility before God as they see themselves for who they are in light of who God really is. Humility and mourning. That's the citizen of the kingdom. So strikingly different than the citizen of the kingdom of this world or the great person that the world would point to and say, there's a successful, happy, blessed man. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. So let's look into that for a few moments tonight. We'll look at the second beatitude under the theme, blessed are they that mourn. We look first at mourning, what this is. And then secondly, Notice the striking thing that Jesus says about those who mourn, that they shall be comforted, yet comforted, and therefore, blessed indeed. Once again, to arrive at the genuine sense of Jesus' words here in the text, it's helpful to clear away a couple of misunderstandings of what mourning means. Two misunderstandings. In the first place, they that mourn, is not referring to any and all mourning, any and all grieving, just as poor in spirit did not refer to a material poverty, but a spiritual poverty, a humble attitude of heart. The same is the case here. They that mourn are not those who merely mourn in the natural way, 
This world is full of mourning. This world is full of sorrow. And there are many who sorrow, but not in the way that this text is speaking of. They that mourn have a spiritual attitude of mourning. It's a mourning, a sincere sorrow that arises from a clear perception of oneself in relationship to God. It's something different. Christians mourn differently. And now this mourning, this spiritual attitude of heart will be found in all that the Christian does. In all that the Christian thinks. It will be found in the Christian's sorrow. All of his sorrow or her mourning. It's a spiritual attitude of the heart. So when Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, he is not simply saying that everyone who sheds tears is blessed, but those who mourn in a certain way. After all, there isn't, or after all, there is a form of mourning that is emphatically not blessed. You think of 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, which speaks of worldly sorrow and says of that worldly sorrow that it worketh death. The sorrow of the world is a sorrow over the consequences of my sin only and the unpleasantness that it brings into my life, but a sorrow that doesn't get at the root. And that will lead us to see what this mourning actually is. But first, a second misunderstanding. When Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, he is not teaching us that Christians ought to be utterly joyless people who go about sullen, miserable, morose all the time, long-faced. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying that joylessness is an essential feature of Christian character. Quite to the contrary, the scriptures so often call us to the joy of the gospel. The apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord Always, again I say rejoice. This mourning is not the contrary of joy, but rather this mourning is, necessi- is a necessity for true joy. Christians are those who mourn and at the same time rejoice with joy unspeakable. Nor is... Uh, Is Jesus saying here that Christians ought to put on a display of their mourning? You think of the Pharisees whom Jesus is going to point out their errors later in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6 verse 16, Jesus says, Be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. That outward, over-the-top display of mourning that is intended not to lower oneself and humble oneself before God on account of one's sin, but which is intended to garner the attention of men and focus their attention on self is a fake, a a hypocritical mourning. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is the other kind of sorrow that we read about in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow that worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. They that mourn are the poor in spirit, who from that spiritual posture of deep humility, seeing God for who He is, and seeing themselves in relationship to God, now look upon their sins. And look upon the reality of evil. 
And the spiritual response of the poor in spirit is this, that they mourn. They mourn. They that mourn are the poor in spirit who see sin and evil in light of God and His goodness and His holiness. They see sin and evil for what it really is and what it really does. And it makes them broken hearted. They mourn over it. And that's where it starts. It starts with me personally. They that mourn are those who grieve on account of their sins. Those who sincerely take ownership of their sins and their sinful nature and sorrow. The mourning that Jesus describes here is more than just an act. It is an activity and it may have a physical appearance. There may be tears, but it is much more than that and goes much deeper than that. The mourning about which Jesus speaks is not first of all the tears that fall from the eyes, but the tears of the soul that fall within the regenerated heart. Indeed, sometimes those tears that fall within draw tears from the eyes, but not always. It's a sorrow of heart. A sorrow of heart that my sins have provoked and aggrieved the one good God who is my heavenly Father. It's a God-centered sorrow rather than a self-centered sorrow. It's not self-pitying, but it is outward-looking. Having seen sin for what it is, and seeing the devastating effects of sin, not only to my neighbors, where my neighbors are touched by my sin, the devastating effects of sin to myself personally, but especially it focuses on the offense that sin is to God. That's what grieves me most. A few biblical examples of this. couple, in the first place, a couple examples of this kind of mourning over specific sins. Psalm 51 verse 4, the familiar 51st Psalm of David where he mourns, mourns his sin. The sin that he had committed against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and he acknowledges ultimately against God. The one good God. The God of his salvation. Verse 4. Against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. And clear when thou judgest. There is the mourning of heart. Of which Jesus speaks. Another example is found in the gospel of Luke. Chapter 7 verses 37 and 38. In this part of the Gospel of Luke, we have the the story of the sinful woman who comes to Jesus and anoints His feet, washing His feet with her tears and wiping His feet with her hair. Luke 7, verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet. 
behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. That was a very visible act, but it was completely different than the visible mourning and the sad countenance of the self-righteous Pharisees. Here we see a broken heart, the sorrow, and yet the joy because she had come to know the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And it is an act, a supreme act of love for the Savior that she had just come to know. And you see the poverty of her spirit, her humility before Christ as she performs this most humble service of love and of thanks. Weeping. Blessed are they that mourn. Another example taken from Romans 7. Here the Apostle Paul reflects more generally upon his sinfulness. The sinfulness of his human nature that cleaves to him. And Paul's attitude wasn't, well, I'm a sinner. I can't help it. It's just the way it is. Thankfully, I'm saved by grace, so I'm just not going to worry about this. I'm not going to worry about how I live. I'm not going to be bothered so much by my sin. Grace covers everything after all. No, we notice the the grief, how Paul mourns over his indwelling sinfulness. Romans 7, verses 18 through 24. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not. But the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not. It is no more I that do it. But sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law. That when I would do good evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God. After the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There it is. That's the mourning that Jesus is talking about here in this second beatitude. And now as we go into a week of self-examination, this is the kind of mourning that we are called to. It is not that we go around the rest of this week crying physical tears, but it is that we submit to the searchlight of the Scriptures and we see our sins and sinfulness and we echo Paul's words there in Romans 7. And if there is a particular sin in our life that we're clinging to like David was, we make David's confession and we turn from it. And turn to our Savior. Like the woman of Luke 7. Cast ourselves at His feet. With the true spiritual tears of a broken heart. That come to know the true joy. of Christ's forgiveness. That's how we come to this table. As they that mourn. There's no room at the table for the righteous who think themselves righteous. There's no room at the table for those who do not mourn their sins. But for the poor sinner who knows and comes with the open hand and the open mouth of faith to Christ and Christ alone. 
you will never be turned away from this table. This morning begins with me and begins with my sin, but it doesn't stop there. It branches out from there and embraces all evil. And so there's a couple other things for us to see as we unpack the idea of what it means to mourn in the sense of this text. They that mourn are also those who mourn for the sins that are committed by others. The sins that are present in the covenant community. The sins of other men. Not in the sense that I take that I'm self-righteously grieved. Sometimes we can, we can act that way, right? We can act so horrified at a sin. But really what we're expressing is an attitude of pride. I would never do such a thing. I would never succumb to that. Look at them. Look at that group of people. <laughs> That's the opposite of what Jesus is describing here. That's the way the Pharisees would mourn over the sins of Israel. Of course they acknowledged that there were sins in Israel. But they did not truly mourn. They took the sins that they saw as reason to puff themselves up. No, the Christian is grieved by the sins of others. Not so that he may lift himself over them. But because he sees the harm and the ruin and the dishonor that such sins bring to God. He grieves for his brother in the church who is caught in the snare of sin. And that mourning motivates him to do what he can to help that brother. To support that brother. To bring that brother the word. To call him to repentance. He mourns. He mourns over the dishonor of God's name that comes when there is sin. Perhaps sin that abounds. In the church of God. Or when sin brings harm. To God's people. Perhaps within the very walls. Where they should have been most protected and safe. Mourn. Think of Psalm 119 verse 136. Where the psalmist says. Rivers of water run down my eyes. Because they keep not thy law. Those. Who have wayward loved ones. Know. What that means. Psalm 119 verse 158. I beheld the transgressors. And was grieved because they kept not thy word. You notice it's not a self-righteous grief. It's not self-centered. But it's a grief over the fact of evil. The damage that evil does. And the dishonor to God's name. Ezekiel 9 verse 4. Speaks. Of those. In the Old Testament church. Who sigh and cry. For all the abominations done. In the midst of Zion. You think of Old Testament history. And the departure of the church. And the sins that prevailed in the midst of her. And God's people. Sighed and cried. Over that sin. And that was good. That's part of the character of a Christian. The Christian is called, or rather is, and is called to be a mourner who mourns in this true spiritual sense. And the Christian church ought to be a mourning church. A church that mourns sin, that acknowledges that sin, that doesn't close its eyes to that sin, but mourns in a true spiritual way, individually and collectively. And that then extends outward yet more They that mourn are those who mourn over the very fact of evil. Over all evil. 
and over all evils, ruinous effects and results. Because all that is evil is utterly contrary to my God. That means I care about the evil that happens out there. Or to my unbelieving neighbor. That moves me too. The Christian is not unmoved by any sin or evil or the sight of the damage that it does. The redeemed child of God loves God so much that he weeps over all sin. He weeps over all evil. And it's especially the evilness of evil that so moves him in his heart. Because it is the black opposite of the beautiful, holy God who is good. And this manifests itself in many ways. Just in the church, it manifests itself as a a sympathetic spirit of brothers and sisters for one another when evil comes into our lives or when there is sin that is done that leaves scars or wounds or does damage. We open our hearts to one another and to one another's suffering. That's hard spiritual work. It is. It is. It's easier to insulate ourselves. But in the body of Christ, the inspired apostle says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Remember, this is the beatitude. This is our character. Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn. This is part of Christian character. And that's a striking fact of this text. This is not something that we do occasionally. It is an activity. But just like poverty of spirit, this is a part of who we are in this world. The citizen of the kingdom is a mourner. A mourner over sin. A mourner over evil. And we are this because grace has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And that means we evaluate, we look at the world in an entirely different way. The citizens of the kingdom of this world, they have an earthly sorrow focused on the unpleasantness of evil and they acknowledge evil. There are many things they say, that's bad, that's evil, that's horrible, but Without faith, you can't get to the root of it. Why it is evil. And the evilness of it. It is contrary to God. And his goodness and his law. And his holy will. But the citizen of the kingdom. By grace. Sees everything differently. Has become different. And the citizen of the kingdom is a pilgrim now in this world. And as the pilgrim passes through this world. Through the ruins that sin and evil have created. The pilgrim mourns. Mourns with tears that only the Christian can shed. The Christian's a changed person. And because we are a changed people... We feel the weariness of this world, the weightiness of its fallenness in a very, very strong way. So I mourn. I mourn my sin. I mourn the reality of sin. I mourn the reality of evil. Not in a despairing way. Always looking in hope to God. But I mourn. 
That's the morning of the text. Now, a couple of applications before we pass on. First, here we see the importance of the biblical doctrine of sin. And not only the importance of having it intellectually correct, but the importance of really believing it. Because when we believe what the Bible says about sin, and we don't sugarcoat it, we mourn spiritually, as Jesus speaks of in this beatitude. And so as we examine ourselves, let's apply the biblical doctrine of sin. We confess total depravity. Do we believe it? Do we believe it about ourselves personally? It is a very sad irony when Christians who confess total depravity go around as if it doesn't apply to them. When Christians are always right and never wrong and never have faults to confess and are always defending themselves, resisting, apologizing to those that they have wronged, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with this text. Which says, blessed are they that mourn those who acknowledge their sinfulness, their brokenness, who mourn and are therefore ready to get on their knees before God, ready to go to that brother with whom I am at odds. You see, this poverty of spirit and this spiritual mourning These characteristics of the Christian, they are foundational for our Christian life, for our spiritual posture before God, and for our relationships with one another. So let us, as we examine ourselves, really apply the biblical doctrine of sin. And as we apply it, then let us repent, turn, Let us not resist having sin pointed out in our lives, but be willing to face it, willing to see the evilness of it, both in my individual life, in my congregation, in my denomination, in the church Catholic. Christians are they that mourn, which means they're willing to face the reality of evil and call it what it is and acknowledge it before the face of God, even abominations done in Zion. Refusal to mourn, to really acknowledge sin and evil for what it is, goes against what we're supposed to be as Christians. Jesus says, mourners, that's who you are, and blessed are they that mourn. Let us take that word to heart and apply it to our own sins to sins in the church. And that's uncomfortable. We don't want to by nature. Being the kind of mourner that Jesus describes here goes against the grain of our nature. There is a certain comfort in not looking evil in the face and acknowledging it and mourning over it. There's comfortable complacency in the normal. In the normal. 
And that's perhaps something that we need to see in ourselves and resist and fight to put off because it's at war with the teaching of this text. To be complacent in normalcy. Let things just go back to normal. Especially when God is shaking the church. Shaking the church. Exposing weaknesses. Exposing sins that are grievous. That are horrific to see. It's very easy. Just back to normal. But the response of the Christian is to see it. To mourn. And to look to the God of his salvation. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount won't let his people be complacent. Such mourning is healthy. Such mourning is healing. Such mourning turns us to look to God more and more and to draw our strength from him. And Jesus promises, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, yet comforted. And that's a beautiful promise of the second beatitude that all those who truly mourn, all those who shed those inner tears of the heart shall be comforted. All they who mourn over sin and mourn over evil shall be comforted. Let's note the, the change in verb tense. Last week we made a point of the fact that Jesus used the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We made the point that they possessed the kingdom already then. We possess the kingdom already now. Jesus uses the future tense here. And his point is not that all of the comfort that comes to the mourner is something in the future that we're not going to receive until then. But he's using the future tense to especially impress upon us the certainty. Because when we mourn, when we are deep in sorrow, very often it can feel like there will never be comfort for me. We're wrestling a besetting sin. We're brought low. Sometimes we wonder, am I ever, ever going to overcome this? Or deep sorrow. Will there ever be a light at the end of the tunnel? Jesus says, my people, you who mourn, you shall be comforted. And there is divine omnipotence in that shall. It shall surely be. And of course, the future aspect is there. That the fullness of this comfort comes when the final realization of the kingdom of heaven is brought about. But comfort is certain for Christ's mourners. What is that comfort? Well, the general definition of comfort we know well. Comfort is the removal of your greatest evil. And all evil, ultimately. The, removest, uh, the removing of the greatest evil. And in its place, the gift of greatest good. Now that removal of evil is not all at once. Our greatest evil has been removed decisively removed by the work of Jesus Christ who took away our sins so that he has merited for us life everlasting. In that sense, the greatest evil has been taken and the greatest good has come to us. But we yet wait for the full realization of all of those blessings, the fullness of our salvation earned by Christ on the cross. And so there is yet much to come. We still struggle against sin and face evil in this world. 
but it has been defeated. It has been removed, and it is being removed. And one day it will be gone, completely gone. The removal of the greatest evil and the receiving of the greatest good, that's what Jesus promises to those who mourn. And so now we, we look back at those, those three categories, or not really categories, but those three senses in which the Christian mourns, and we see how Christ and His gospel is the comfort to us. They that mourn over their own sins shall be comforted, Jesus says. They who believe in Him and mourn over their sins have that immediate comfort of the gospel of Christ. It's the bowed head of the mourner that Christ lifts so that we look away from all those sins that we see. And we look into His face, the face of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The comfort of those who mourn over their sin and their sinfulness is that Jesus Christ Himself came to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And He not only became acquainted with all of our earthly griefs and our afflictions and our infirmities, He did. As a compassionate high priest, He acquainted Himself with the entire range of human misery. So that every single thing we suffer and sorrow over, He knows. He's been there. But much more than that, Jesus gets to the root of human misery. He endured not only the sorrows of this fallen world and the evil effects of sin, but He took upon Himself the burden of the sins of His people. That accumulated guilt of all of us and all of God's elect people. One giant massive burden which He took and placed upon His own shoulders. As the prophet Isaiah says in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. And this Jesus, who preaches this sermon here, as He preached it, was on His way. He had come into the world for this purpose. To bear the burdens of his mourners. To bear them all the way to the cross. Where he paid for every single one of those sins that you and I mourn over. And that's the next step of our self-examination. As we see our sin and are pricked in our hearts and cut to the quick. That sin that I mourn is taken. Carried and borne away by my Christ who died on that cross for me. And now I'm going to come to the table with the expectancy of faith and look upon that visible word, the, the broken bread and the poured out wine, and I will see there the word of Christ to me. This is my taking away of your burdens. This is me wiping away the tears that you shed over your sin. This 
is my conquest over sin and over death and over all evil itself. Behold, the victory of my cross. And now we see, do we not, how the Christian who is mourning is at the same time rejoicing with joy unspeakable. Rejoicing in the Lord. This is a big part of why only those that mourn shall be comforted. That's another point that Jesus makes here in this beatitude. Only they that mourn shall be comforted. Those who don't know their sins do not know Christ. Those who do not mourn their sins are spiritually incapable in that state of knowing the joy of forgiveness. They that mourn. Just as we noticed last week, how poverty in spirit is not set up as some condition of salvation, the same thing is true of mourning. God's grace brings His people low, humbles them, brings them to mourn. Jesus humbles, that He may exalt. And that's what we see here. They that mourn, And so if you don't mourn over your sins, don't deceive yourself into thinking, grace means I don't have to mourn, I don't have to worry, I will just come to this table. No, only the mourners may come. If you do not mourn, repent. Turn to Christ. Turn to His Word. See sin for what it is. and May the Spirit of God work that conviction of sin in your heart. Jesus comforts them that mourn over the sins of others. Over the sins in the church. Over the sins that are seen and the damage that is done. What comfort in knowing that Christ the King reigns. That His character, His justice is maintained and His plans are achieved that all things must work together for the good of those who are the citizens of His kingdom. He is the perfect King who executes justice, righteousness and mercy. God will not suffer a single wrong to go without redress. In His timing, all will be made right and that which we so often call delay, we must remember, is His perfect timing. God is the God who brings wicked devices to naught. He is the God who overcomes evil with good. That's the way He works. And that's the comfort for the church when she goes through times and seasons of hardship and affliction and shaking. Her God has not forsaken her. Her God is with her as much as He ever was. And He's working in a powerful way for good. God overcomes evil with good. And for us as we mourn over the the fact of evil, over all evil, for the ruinous effects of evil, is not our comfort in this, that we belong to this Christ. And therefore all things are for me, and nothing can be against me. And when the effects of sin and the ravages of evil Bring me very, very low and put me in a very 
deep, dark place in this life. Christ, the high priest, is there with me. Touched with every feeling of my infirmities. The man of sorrows knows. The man of sorrows understands. The man Jesus who wept at Lazarus' grave. Extends to you the same heart of compassion. In your sufferings child of God. When you weep. Your intercessor prays. And those afflictions he turns for your sanctification. He brings good out of all. And ultimately this comfort that Jesus speaks about points us forward. It points us forward. We shall be comforted. We're comforted now. We're comforted now also by the promise of what shall be. Of what is in store. The manifold riches of the grace of our God. We've been saved into the kingdom. And that kingdom is coming in all of its fullness. Right now, the citizens of the kingdom of this world, they laugh. But as Jesus says in Luke 6, they will one day mourn. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we mourn now. The day is coming that we shall laugh with joy that will never, ever be extinguished. We will exchange the tired garments of our pilgrimage, the sackcloth of mourning, for the robes of the saints. There will be no more sin, in deed or in nature. Just think of it. That's the kingdom in its fullness that Jesus points us to. No more sin in me. No more proneness to hate God in my neighbor, but perfect love and perfect peace. And with no more sin, there is no more evil and no more suffering. Every wound shall be healed. The great physician will guarantee that. And they'll never be torn open again. All brokenness will be mended. And nothing will ever go wrong again. You'll never feel the touch of sin or evil. The kingdom come is the end of all tears. Revelation 7 verse 17 is such a graphic depiction of the kingdom in all of its fullness. And this is the comfort of the believer. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. And shall lead them unto living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The very fingers of God. Will wipe those last tears away. And the Lord's Supper is a foretaste. Of that kingdom in its fullness. We come with that expectancy. To have our faith strengthened. And the joyfulness of faith. Renewed. So blessed indeed. Blessed indeed are they that mourn. Happy mourners. 
There's the marvelous thing about this beatitude. Jesus puts two things together that according to the world never belong together. Sorrow and happiness. Mourning and blessedness. And yet Jesus says the only people who are truly happy are they that mourn. Happy, blessed, mourners. That's who a Christian is. That's who we are. We mourn over sin and evil, but we are blessed because by grace we have been awakened to that which is truly good. Our God, His plan, His purposes, His Christ, His kingdom, and our grief over evil. It comes now from that new affection for the good that has been wrought in our hearts. Godly sorrow turns us mournful Christians to our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the source of all true joy. Happy is the man who mourns over his sins. For he will know personally the meaning of David's words. When he says blessed is the man. Unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no guile. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. What joy there is. For the Christian. What joy there is even in the hardest times. Even when we mourn the most. Joy. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. That's what Jesus says. Let us say in in response. Blessed be God. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Who comforteth us in all our tribulations. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father. We thank Thee for this word of Jesus Christ. A searching word. A word that sets before us. The many reasons that we must mourn. It sets before us our identity as mourners. Awaken in our hearts more and more this sincere sorrow of heart for sin. This true spiritual mourning over the reality of evil. Wherever it is found. But may it not be the mourning and the sorrow of the world. May it not be the despair. That is found so often in the world. But may it be coupled with that true Christian joy. Of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. The comfort of belonging to him. The comfort that his kingdom has come. And is swiftly coming in all of its fullness. The comfort that wipes away tears now. And the comfort that those tears shall finally and completely be wiped away. On that great day of Jesus Christ. Use this word to help us prepare to come to thy table. Next Sunday. All of this we ask in Jesus name. Amen.